Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. As I was saying Happy New Year then, I realised we already published an episode in 2024. Oh well. Anyway, this week I have a recording for you of a very interesting panel discussion that took place in Brussels at the end of last year on the topic of how crises affect science advice. So the four panellists in the discussion you're about to hear, in the order in which you will hear them, are... Professor Tina Comes, an expert in crisis resilience and decision theory at Technical University Delft. Barbara Pleinsack, a professor at the University of Vienna, although currently working at Wissenschaftskolleg zu Berlin and chair of the European Group on Ethics in Science and New Technologies. She, by the way, appeared on this very podcast back in 2022. Maria Krusma, Professor of Biorobotics at Tallinn University of Technology and one of the group of Chief Scientific Advisors to the European Commission. And finally, Daniela Di Bucci, a geologist in the Italian government's Department of Civil Protection. So just by way of introduction, this topic of what it's like to give science advice to politicians and policymakers in the context of some kind of emergency is one that keeps coming up for obvious reasons, I suppose. And so to kick off the discussion, I asked each of the four speakers, starting with Tina Comes, to comment on what they thought the challenges were for science advisors operating in that kind of crisis context, and also if they saw any opportunities there. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'll see you again in two weeks for one of our more regular style episodes. As our German friends say, have a very happy slide into 2024. Thanks. Thanks for having us here. And also thanks to the audience for sort of finding it after we try to maximize confusion. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very happy to be here. And indeed, we are living in challenging times. I mean, you only have, I assume you all have watched the news over the past days. Um, there is and there has been, I think, over the last year or years, not a single day without being confronted with crisis crisis of various natures, right? We see wars uh, in Europe and at our borders. Um, we have had, again in summer, climate extremes, heat waves, floods. We had devastating earthquakes um, to which also the civil protection mechanism responded. We are still confronted with uh, massive inflation, um, economic decline, and so forth. Now, really the challenge, and I think that's both for policy and for science, is that all of this is connected. And that means for us, being scientists, that we really have to make, in the morning there was, were these pleas in the plenary also for, for interdisciplinary research, that we have to take that up and think through the consequences of these crises. COVID was again mentioned a lot this morning. And of course we've seen that COVID was not just a health crisis, um, but also affected really the lives, livelihoods, education, well-being and welfare um, of many, many people. So we need to tackle this um, in an interdisciplinary way. Um, another challenge, I think, is that we are often reacting to crisis. Although, and maybe that's confirmed by civil protection later on, what you normally try in crisis management is to be ahead of the crisis. So other than just responding to something and, and always sort of running after the fact, you try to be ahead of it. Um, and that really requires um, a change of perspective. 
right? That you have to ask yourself what not only will very likely happen, but also what might happen, and what should we be prepared for? What do we want to be prepared for? What can we be prepared for? And sometimes that also touches upon inconvenient things, questions that are potentially highly politicized, right? Toby mentioned that we had the discussion of the, the evidence review report. Um, when we started this report, that was meant as a sequel of the COVID-19 reports. But then, of course, you know, when we had assembled the working group, we were also asking what expertise do we need, and we were sticking to a scoping paper. But then, of course, the war in Ukraine um, started, and there were all of a sudden huge questions about migration. And I've been working on crisis and humanitarian disaster management throughout my career. And I know that issues like migration are highly value-laden. I think that's a nice segue to you. But very often uncomfortable. So difficult for, for um, politics to discuss. And I think there we also have to think about how do we make these potential crises or these ongoing crises that, that are there, how can we also yeah, dare discuss these crises that we maybe don't want to see? Um, and related to that is also like a question we had is like what very often in COVID, when, when is this going to start? And at some point uh, we heard a policymaker say, well, COVID is over when the next crisis starts. <laughs> and that may be a reflex of the political system. But again, it doesn't speak to the, 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 the nature of these entangled crises that we are confronted with, whereby climate change, migration, conflict are all interrelated. So again, this is something where we need to dare look also at the tools that science has um, to address this complexity. Thank you very much. Um, just a quick question, because you, you point out, you emphasize, and also in the evidence review report, you emphasize very clearly that the crises are all interrelated, that they're entangled with one another and they kind of feed each other. Um, do you also get the sense that they have, like, they're basically the same or similar underlying causes? Are they also connected in that way, that, they, that these crises come from the same root causes? So it's, it's always hard to identify one single root cause for any crisis, but of course there are some underlying trends that amplify things. Now, uh, when we talk about the technicalities of what a crisis is, so a crisis occurs when there is a hazard, an extreme event, for instance, um, like an earthquake or a flood. And of course these are amplified by climate, climate change um, amplifies these extreme weather events. But they're also always only, so a hazard becomes a crisis or a disaster if it meets a societal vulnerability. Right? And there, of course, we are looking at systems where more and more people live in areas that are um, prone to climate change. We see increasingly um, complex systems that are highly entangled, that amplify these vulnerabilities. We see poverty. Right? It's also uh, uh, eroding coping capacity, a lack of trust that was also mentioned, and all these make then or turn the impact of a hazard into increasingly severe and serious crisis that ripple then throughout. Great, thank you. And thanks also for introducing some of those useful distinctions between the crisis and the hazard and the vulnerability. Great, thank you. Barbara, the same question to you.
um, what are the opportunities and what are the challenges? So thank you also from my side to everyone who made it in person and online. I think Tina's um, introduction was really good. Um, also because you, you drew attention to a lot of the controversies and a lot of the policy issues actually being issues about value and values. <laughs> um, very few policy problems, as policymakers will know, can be solved on the basis of information alone. And so, and that's a kind of um, ironic situation that we have seen in, in, in um, scientific policy advice in, during the COVID crisis, but also before. So very often, and I speak also as the chair of the European Group on Ethics, those who are seen as in charge of the soft stuff, quote unquote, are those who are seen as in charge of the ethics and, and experts on value, which by the way is not just thinking out loud about what you think is good, but it, there's a lot of empirical evidence on what creates trust, what hurts trust. All of those, this type of expertise was very often marginalized. Um, and the narrative was, um, well, there's an acute crisis and there's no time to think about values. So the effect of that was exactly what we heard downstairs in the first panel, namely that there's a huge crisis of trust, there's a crisis of trust in, in science, there's a crisis of trust actually not so much in democracy but in governing. Um, and the expertise of that, I think, really needs to be foregrounded. In, in, in policy advising, especially also when it comes to the multi-crisis, the poly-crisis, as some call it, and the nested crisis, um, that include, of course, very prominently the climate crisis. The climate crisis can be described, or policymaking in the context of the climate crisis can be described as controversies about values. Um, it's not really a controversy about evidence, I dare say. So how can we do that? I think we need to, policymakers really need to stop solving value crisis by looking at opinion polls. Not only because they can't solve it in this way, but also because it is actually from a democratic point of view, very, very problematic. Democracy is not majority rule. So I'm a political scientist by training, but also the European Group on Ethics has published our opinion on democracy in, 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 um, digital, in the digital age recently, where we emphasize the point that democracy becomes an empty shell if it's reduced to the outer institutions, such as elections, as important as they are. But um, democracy is not just a majority role. Democracy includes the protection of minorities. And just to solve value crisis by looking at, and I'm talking also about my own country, I'm not, not, not necessarily talking about the EU level, I'm talking about many national policymakers. They, to use a COVID example, they, they look at how, what is the percentage of people who are willing to, to wear masks, who doesn't like them, so we do away with the, the mask mandate, and so on. So this is not a way to solve this is, I would even say this is the beginning of an undemocratic way of, of problem solving. So we need to have more systematic ways of bringing in expertise on value, and I don't mean 
only public deliberation. I don't mean only broadening the scope of people who have a say, as important as that is. I'm talking about the, system, the bringing in of systematic evidence uh, of um, ethical concerns, systematic ethical considerations of aspects, and empirical evidence on value and values. And um, Toby asked this question about the common root cause or the root cause of many of those crises and one could describe it you know paraphrasing Matsukato as a problem of as a crisis of value so our societies our political and economic institutions are chasing the, and embedding the wrong values one could say this is not something radically new there are lots of people who are making this very argument right now um, two more points that I just want to put on the agenda. I'm not going to elaborate on them because I've spoken to four minutes for four minutes and 50 yeah, seconds. Right. <laughs> um, so short-term thinking, and this I don't. Well, I do criticize policymakers for what I mentioned: solving value crisis by opinion polls. But I don't criticize them for short-term thinking. I think this is built into our current electoral cycles, into our, into our political institutions, if you will. But we need to get over it. We need to collectively find a way to, to cr increase the choice architecture, uh, to, to change the choice architecture, to increase incentives for policymakers to, um, to think long-term. Um, Helga Novotny calls it cathedral thinking. So we need to get policymakers to make decisions now that they won't live to see. If they won't live to see the effects and still um, they, they need to it, it needs to be possible for them to do that, especially around um, climate change, where there's a very lively debate, as you know, on how to represent the needs of future generations. Um, and the last point that I'll make, because Toby um, kindly allowed me to speak for one more minute, um, Tina already put it very well, uh, what, what, what's a crisis versus an emergency or a vulnerability. I, I want to draw our attention also to the fact that crises are what changes the status quo, and it says a lot about us, what we call a crisis, and what we don't. And in the, the problem with policy making and policy advice is also sometimes we're asking the very same policymakers with the same toolbox to solve the crisis that was created by the same toolbox. This is not something that policymakers can change or that we can change. But for example, when we, when we ask when we give advice to a government that has really flown the flags of austerity and then they suddenly embrace resilience resilience includes redundancy it includes buffers it includes it means that you have more staff in a hospital than you actually need so you need to pay them well you need to give them so it's there's a value conflict here um, we won't be able to we won't be able to save crisis with the same policy instruments that we used to bring about the crisis. Thank you very much. No, don't put it down because I want to ask you a question. A, a quick I've one. I've already spoken for seven minutes now. Uh, well, but <laughs> when it's so interesting, why not continue a little longer? Um, I, so you say that you kind of don't uh, blame a policymaker for the short-term thinking because it's built into the system in which they work, and I can understand that. But you do blame them for being too sensitive to, to opinion polls and the changing public opinion. Why make that distinction? Because isn't that also like built into the environment in which they work? Well, because, okay, I have to go into political theory a little bit by answering this. At the moment, our theories of representation um, are limited to representing human beings that are alive now. 
There are many people who, who think that ah. should be changed. Um, there are people who say that we, we need to find, find ways to represent non-human entities and future generations. And there are very interesting um, approaches going back to, to Hannah Pitkin, how to do that. But this is, this, this is the current state we're supposed to represent the interests of people being alive now. However, when it comes to um, looking at the evidence to create value, uh, to, to solve value conflicts, the evidence are not opinion polls. And to just use opinion polls is lazy and unexcusable from a democratic point of view. Because exactly, exactly for the reason that I mentioned, it becomes a reduction to, you've reduced democracy to a very crude understanding of what the majority view is. And in countries that has uh, monopolized media and censorship, it means that you're more or less um, enforcing and entrenching the rules of, um, of, of those who control the media. Fascinating, thank you. Thank you, Maria and Daniela, for your patience, but this is good stuff. Um, Maria, the same question is to you, which I won't repeat again. Yep, thank you very much. Um, uh, interesting opinions, and already much has been said. Um, I would bring out two aspects that uh, previous speakers didn't touch upon that much. And one is um, as a question of uncertainty for a scientific advisor. So we know it's almost a definition of, uh, of a crisis. Uh, Tina can correct me, but if a crisis strike, we actually don't know what's happening. There is a lot of uncertainty. And that makes science advice and crisis much more challenging than in, in, in other cases, because we don't know really what kind of virus is that, or you know who is attacking, or, or, or something like that. We have to go and collect evidence, and we have to do it fast. And and at the same time, the decision makers can't wait. They have to act upon not knowing. So for a, um, a science advisor, it's very important that we don't communicate only the facts that we know, the evidence that we know, but also the uncertainty that comes along with that. So there's a big difference if we say that the virus is deadly or the virus maybe is deadly, or we think the virus might be deadly, because for a policymakers who listens to that, she can take a completely different decision based on how much there is uncertainty in that. And it's very hard thing for a, a science advisor to go out there and say, I don't know. But in some cases, we have to honestly say that, you know, there's nothing to say, we just don't know. We just act on your gut feeling, on your, you know, experienced politicians have a you have a very good cut feeling sometimes and know what to do even without a, a scientific advice. And to know your limitation is quite difficult in, in those cases. And uh, Barbara already um, spoke about uh, values in crisis and the definition of crisis, it's value-laden by definition. But um, uh, something we don't talk so much about is that science advisors also have values. And um, mm. Therefore, science advisors also have biases. And now it depends on the crisis. Sometimes, you know, those biases are really strong and sometimes they are not. I think they are much smaller with the COVID. Everybody knows the COVID. COVID is an enemy. We have to kill it. It wasn't so sure with the Ukrainian war. We all thought the same thing. Well, it's okay. Still go trade and, you know, keep some money in the bank and so on, you know, whatever. So, um, see, the values are 
sometimes we, we, we think a lot about biases. This is why also we have seven chief scientific advisors for different fields from different countries with different experiments. So, you know, the bias is kind of, you know, uh, even out. But still, you know, we all relatively well paid in our 50s, mostly liberal academics, uh, white and so on. So we definitely have a, some sort of a bias and at the same time we are giving advice to policymakers who have to make the decisions for completely different kind of audience than we are. And, um, and knowing our limitations in cases is, is quite important. Um, do you know of any useful mechanisms or techniques, like very practically speaking, that you as a science advisor can use to try to, um, if you're aware of those biases, to try and uh, reduce their effect? You mentioned one of just having more of you, right, from more different backgrounds. Um, any more tips? Um, I found it very useful to work with the European group of ethics for exactly that reason that we can tell apart what is an evidence-based and what is a value-based decision. Mm. And they go hand in hand in crisis. But to make sure that what is really an evidence and what I think or what I wish would be an evidence or you know, what I would disregard as an evidence, um, that's very useful. To know that you're actually a value-based creature already helps to reduce that bias drastically. Daniela, so from your experience of uh, advising on crises in Italy, what can you bring to the discussion? Um, thank you. Um, my first point is um, a little bit to introduce you uh, in how civil protection in Italy works, because we are part of the Prime Minister's office. So we are a technical structure that is uh, uh, coordinated uh, by the Prime Minister and coordinates a system so civil protection means uh, the different level of government, so national, regional, and so on, means scientists that are formally part of the system, means um, professionals, means um, students, and so on. So the system is complex, includes the science, and this is the first point I would, I would like to underline. One of the most important uh, results that we achieved since the uh, 70s is work together with the scientific community. Uh, they support us in all the risk cycle. This is a second point. They don't jump in during a crisis. Scientific community is with us every day. We collaborate every day with them. They provide us, of course, STEM disciplines are the first one. They monitor earthquakes, they monitor volcanoes. We are uh, addressing this issue in this period. Uh, they provide us support in the legislation, uh, but they are formally with us because the scientific community is in the law that rules civil protection in Italy. The second point is that we work on the entire risk cycle. So prevention, forecasting, preparedness, and then a response to, in, in case of emergency and uh, or, or what after the, the emergency uh, is needed. So, so working together in, in these fields, there is a, a continuous uh, preparation and 
no one jumps in. How can I say? There is no scientific advice to the policymakers. There are scientists and policymakers that work together. This is the different paradigm that uh, I, I would like to underline. The, the third point is that when we, when we talk about um, risk cycle, we talk about, uh, for instance, all the components of the risk. So we are scientists that help, that help us in uh, the physical phenomena, um, floods, we have scientists that help us in uh, an assi assessment of the vulnerability, that is the physical vulnerability of buildings, for instance, but also the social vulnerability. The involvement of the uh, vulnerable groups, both in prevention and during the emergency, and uh, means the exposure. So the large numbers of people and the goods that are exposed to the events. In these years, we are also addressing the involvement of economics and social sciences following the discussion this morning of the panel, uh, the introductivity panel, because the indirect effects of crisis and emergencies are really important. And they have to be uh, balanced, evaluating the costs of prevention, because of course we know that prevention is much less expensive, but we know that politicians are not in particularly interested in, in investing in prevention. Uh, and another point that I would like to underline is that um, we should differentiate. Uh, in the world of, of policymakers, there are two main groups of policy, two main groups. There are the politicians and the technical policymakers, because as uh, civil protection uh, officials, we are as well policymakers, but we do not decide about the policies that, we decide the technical policies, but not the politics. So there are different roles and different responsibilities. And in fact, the system works well when we know the responsibilities of each other and we do not fail these responsibilities. So for instance, let me say, which is the acceptable level of risk is in charge of, of the politics, of course, because it includes values. What's acceptable for me is not acceptable for another country. And this is a topic not always addressed uh, happily by politicians. And uh, when to intervene in case of emergency is up to us, but we need to decide based on scientific uh, contribution. Very often scientists do not provide quantitative uh, advice, so it's quite difficult for us to, to decide without uh, quantitative uh, evaluations. One of the solutions that is working quite well in Italy that could be uh, something that could be discussed is that in our system we have some, uh, we call them hybrid experts. Uh, I am an, a, a typical hybrid expert <laughs> because I am a, a, a governmental officer, but I have also uh, habilitation as full professor in structural geology, I am a geologist. So I am exactly in the middle. Uh, I can understand, and all my colleagues as me, we can understand both the languages, both the needs. I understand uncertainties. I understand that the politicians want to know yes or not. I can translate in the two ways. So it's not uh, from science to politics, but it's also the needs from politics to science. And this is uh, in, in, in a virtual in a virtuous way, this is uh, uh, something that works well. Of course, there are also 
also some uh, the, the other side of the moon uh, in this <laughs> system, of course. But this could be a way to ad address the, the, the problem. So I think that uh, including science formally in, in the activities related to the whole risk cycle, uh, in promoting the multi-risk approach, including also social and sciences, and having people who's able to understand uh, all the fields and uh, make uh, uh, the connection could be a suggestion that could be useful also at the European level. Thank, that, that does sound like you're describing, at least it seems to me as a non-expert, see what the other experts think, describing quite a, a mature and well-developed system, right, with scientists integrated into it permanently and multidisciplinary as well, you mentioned, right, involving all the disciplines, um, and also addressing prevention as well as, uh, as well as emergency response. But that means, I'm afraid, I do want to ask you about the dark side of the moon. Um, I, would, I want to know if it works. So I, I don't know about Italy, but I have spoken to somebody who was telling me about the system in France and said, similarly in France, we had, in theory, quite a mature, intricate system of the kind you described. But when COVID hit, for political reasons, the president was like, okay, we need a new advisor, we need a new council, and kind of created a new body, and indeed kept creating new bodies in response to public opinion throughout the COVID pandemic, right? I wonder whether um, all this set up in Italy, how well does it actually perform during a crisis in your experience? The COVID was a problem also in Italy, of course, because uh, in, in the civil protection system that it's mature, well-structured, we usually deal with natural risks and some kind of anthropogenic risks for us, for us as industrial hazards, like things like that. COVID was uh, among the risks in charge of the Ministry of Health. So they built up a new uh, commission, scientific commission. We have already our major risk commission that doesn't include, now it includes also the, the health, but it didn't at the time. Mm -hmm. So this was a problem. So the point is uh, how why is uh, the spectrum of uh, the, the, the interest of the activities of sea protection? And this is a, a question also for Europe because DG ECHO is, is working on this because after COVID, we, and we were strongly involved in COVID, we, we have been also strongly involved in Ukraine crisis because we supported the, the civil part of uh, the, the people coming in Italy from Ukraine. And now we are involved in, have been involved in the Libya in emergency floods, plus dam, plus a lot of vulnerability, plus a difficult from the political point of view. So civil protection is widening. And, and if you talk with the uh, Swedish people, they consider crisis and work together. So which is the, the boundary in which we have to talk about emergencies, about crisis, and about risks. This is a high-level discussion, I think, that should be, uh, that is, in fact, addressed uh, by the Commission and by uh, the Europeans as well. Great, thank you. Well, thank you all very much. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, both uh, at home, online, and in the room, I don't believe we have a roving microphone, but that's a... Uh, I see, I thought we do have a microphone. Excellent, okay, so if, in the, if you're in the room and you would like to make a comment or question, then the microphone will come to you, just wave. You can also, and also if you are at home, you can uh, ask a question by typing it into Slido, so it's Slido, S-L-I-D-O dot com, and then it's hash S4P conference, as in science for policy conference. If you're in the room, you can also type it there if you're shy, and it should appear 
on the screen in front of me and so we can pass on the questions to the panel. Um, yes, please go ahead. Yes, hello everybody. Uh, Elias from the Joint Research Center. And I have a question regarding the type of risks that we currently consider in risk registries and also in the debate right now. Um, often they're about sort of risk related to nature and nature degradation, climate change as an amplifier. Um, my, my bedtime uh, framework update, great reading. Um, and there they talk also more about existential risks stemming directly from technological change. So from artificial intelligence, beyond the type of human rights framing that we currently have, um, from engineered pandemics rather than naturally occurring pandemics. Um, and I'm wondering whether you think that there currently is the bias towards these more, let's say, natural risks and then under-representations of these new type of risks. Thank you. Who would like to uh, comment on those? I just, um, since you were, when you were talking, I remembered we had a um, session with an expert and there was an economist who said that the worst enemy of a crisis manager is a lack of imagination. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's always like that, we're really, hit, with the crisis really hit, we are kind of, you know, puzzled, <laughs> where did it come from? Um, I, I think also that we are underestimating the possible technological risks, um, which is it's kind of a crisis that never has been before with a technology which we're still not using or which is just emergence. Hence, we can't have an experience with a crisis like that. And it's very hard to prevent that for exactly that reason. So I think we are actually underestimating the risks from, uh, from technology. As myself, having um, a background in computer science and knowing how, how this algorithm works, I think it's, it's probably not very likely. But at the same time, um, unlikely things happen all the time, right? This is a thing with crisis, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But it's all very well to say like, okay, prepare for the risks you can imagine. Prepare for the risks that you have seen already in the past. But how can you possibly prepare for a risk that you cannot even imagine yet? Yeah, I think this is one of the uh, best outcomes of the, uh, of the report of crisis management as a work of Tina, and that um, all crises have something in common. So maybe it like, um, sounds too sciencey, but we are dealing with a crisis, uh, a general abstract crisis, which still has the same common features. So, we can learn from completely different crises for the new one, uh, for exactly that reason. I saw Tina and Barbara both reach for the microphones. Tina and then Barbara. Yeah, I think uh, so. One of the first things is, of course, that you know what we just said on a relatively abstract level that a crisis always exploits a vulnerability in the system that exists. So it doesn't turn into a crisis if there is no vulnerability, right? And if there's no exposure as well. So what you would try to do is, while you, of course, monitor the risks that you know that should be monitored, of course, oh, everything else would be stupid if you have a volcano that is starting to move, then please monitor that, right? But, um, <laughs> but, but for the rest, think about sort of what, like how can you Im improve societal resilience? How can you reduce uh, vulnerabilities? And what would be essential um, also coping mechanisms that you would strengthen, sort of what, what uh, Maria just said, no matter what happens, right? 
people will always need other people. They will need food, they will need clean water, they will need shelter, they will need education. Right? That's what you can prepare for in any case. And then plus then the question of like, how do we want to live? That's then very <laughs> handing over to Barbara, of course, that you have to. So um, I was about a year ago in, uh, in, in DC at a panel of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, where it was about you know, how could we survive a nuclear winter? When I came out of that session, I said, I don't know if I would want to survive a nuclear winter. <laughs> no, but really because you would live in such dire conditions with the majority of humanity wiped out in complete darkness, cold, and from some kind of microgreens, that you really have to, and, and it's so, and it's not that I don't like microgreens, but it's also this complete societal upheaval that that would imply. You would, no, stone ages, I don't know, you would be back to a society that has nothing to do with our culture, with our values, with our norms, that you really would have to ask, would, would that be desirable in any case? So I think that question also plays a big role, especially in these technological risks that you were referring to. I think we need to um, interject and say that risks are not objectively measurable entities that are just out there and that we then go out and measure. So we, we as, as societies, we classify we build the category of what a risk is. So to give a very practical example, there was no risk of a domestic violence before there was a concept of domestic violence. So when it was okay for husbands to hit their wives and sometimes also the other way, there wasn't a risk for domestic violence. Think of uh, sexualized harassment, racialized um, violence and so on. So w w we have a historically a tendency to see risks um, better when they are, when we consider them as coming from the outside and from the inside. So I can't give a good answer to your question, but I, I would say that um, there is certainly some, it's, there's something certainly that I observe as well, that there's an increasing awareness of um, phenomena and practices that, that, that we engage in also causing some risks that we need to consider as relevant, the risk of poverty, the risk of violence, and so on and so on. So you find it in the SDGs, you find it in other policies. Um, but but whenever, we, whenever there are risks that, um, that, 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 that are marginalized, we also need to think of or some practices that are not considered risk, we always need to think of what function does that fulfill that this is not considered a risk. So, this is a plea to not take risk as a sort of hard category, but always see how we actually create um, the notion of risk in our societies. Interesting. We have a question online, uh, and specifically at Daniela. Uh, could you make reference to a successful science-informed policymaking example in civil protection in Italy? So an example of a time when it's worked well. Oh, yes. Um, uh, of course, after an emergency. After an earthquake occurred in Italy in 2009, uh, a, a law was issued uh, was, uh, um, in which uh, we started um, uh, a plan for prevention in, of the seismic risk. Uh, so uh, we decided to start this plan at national level, distributing funds to the, 
all the regions involved uh, in high risk level, seismic risk level. And the way we used, in which we distributed funds to uh, reduce the vulnerability of buildings, public, private, and infrastructure, was related to um, uh, the study of uh, hazard, seismic hazard, seismic risk carried out by our scientific community. So we decided to distribute funds to reduce the risk based on the knowledge uh, that our scientific community provide us with uh, related to the level of hazard and the level of risk in each region. So this uh, is a way in which we uh, made a decision based on science. And uh, I, I, if, if I may add very quickly something to the question, uh, as a, uh, we work with the scientists who provide us information that's, that deal with the applied science, but uh, for the future, for the future risks, for the technological risks that we cannot imagine, I think that there is a wide room in the research of basic research science, so not applied, pure science. I think that the horizon, for the horizon project could explore very deeply this kind of future perspectives because we are involved in science related to volcanoes and to power plants or to floods, but to explore these news, new, new perspectives, basic science, base science, I don't know, how the pure science could be the place where to explore it. Chloe? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, you already have it. Okay, yeah, and then Chloe. Thank you. My name is Yaba. I'm, I'm a policy researcher from Vilnius, PPMI. Um, I was really fascinated about this notion of values and how a value conflict can, or a value conflict that we didn't even realize existed really comes to light uh, during crisis. And I was wondering how can we better um, are there any practical ways to really approach uh, a value conflict? I mean, I do understand these broad notions of uh, making the society more um, open to evidence and so forth, but on a ground level, uh, as policymakers or as researchers, how do we navigate uh, a value conflict in a way that's constructive and, and brings about positive outcomes for democracy. So, so if I may, yes. that there's no, this is, a, this is a very, very important, well, it should be something, that's my whole point, it should be a question for everyone. See that the problem, the, the fact that I'm seen as the expert now is, is part of the problem. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's a, it's a hugely difficult and important question and there's no answer that fits all scenarios. But one thing that is always part of a solution is to make those values explicit. And the, the European Group on Ethics, we said this in our statement on, on values in times of crisis, that especially when there's uh, time pressure, then it's very understandable that sometimes policymakers think we don't have time for values, we have to solve the problem at hand. I, I get that. But when as, as soon as you rely on um, people's willingness to, to adhere to the measures, then it's very, very important to make explicit the values that 
are that underpin certain decisions, certain certain options, and also certain instruments. And it can be. I see that you are skeptical because it can be difficult. But um, just spelling it out for yourself as a policymaker, what what am I now going for? The value of personal freedom to move freely. Um, or am I going for the value of protecting life? Just by making this explicit can help you frame the question at hand in a different way. So that always needs to be part of the story. And then there are different solutions. Sometimes you can afford time-wise to have a public deliberation or you, you have experts who help you or sometimes it needs to be a technocratic decision. So the, 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 the pathways from that time on, from that point on are different, but you need this first um, reflection on what are the values that certain policy options? Yeah. What happens then if, uh, because very widely different policy solutions can be suggested for the same value, for instance, personal freedom, we can have uh, policy solutions that are um, argued for in a way that's uh, ridiculous to some who still subscribe to personal freedom uh, some people I mean I don't want to okay I don't then want you to. can eat one sentence sorry then you can either say we we have a public debate about this yes. or you say I have to make a decision quickly and I'm going for a and most policymakers shy away from this because they think I'm making themselves vulnerable in the short term yes in the middle in the middle run no no, no, just also trying to be very concrete here, right? So I work at a technical university, we do a lot of models, simulation models, about potential outcomes of policy decisions or of, uh, of specific uh, scenarios, for, for instance in COVID, right? And then what we try to do is not just say, oh, this was for policy A, this is going to be the number of hospitalized people, and this is for policy B, the number of hospitalized people and how it evolves over time but also integrate other implications in the model, right? So you can have economic implications, and of course, yes, there's uncertainty associated to them. You can have um, something like school closures and uh, you know, kids not uh, able to attend school anymore to make the trade-offs that, uh, that, that you're facing also explicit. But that for us meant that we were asked, you know, by policymakers, what should we do <laughs> locally? And I said, well, that's not my role. <laughs> Sorry, I can't tell you exactly what you should do, but I can show you that the outcomes of your decision, um, yeah, on these and these objectives, as we then call them, not directly valued, are, you know, this and this. And then there is a trade-off, which then requires a deliberation process. But what we can do is, A, be very transparent about how we get to these um, trade-offs, try to help people reason through them to, to, to make these trade-offs and really yeah, get a better grasp of the implications of their decisions to avoid that it's all just about hospitals being full or not being full, right? Also compare different timelines. And then third, also help them to, to have something yeah, more concrete to think about and, and to argue about and to reason with then very abstract norms that may also be very hard to communicate. Great, thank you. Um, we are up against the clock, so Chloe, in a moment you may ask what will be the final question of the day. I just want to give the panel a heads up that, uh, well, so our friend Shira here 
um, has kindly volunteered this afternoon in the final plenary session to bring the outcomes of this discussion to the plenary. So, um, panellists, if you could think uh, also uh, before the end of the session, one highlight, so nothing new, but something that's already been said by yourself or by another panellist, um, that you think is an important takeaway from this session, you could perhaps mention it and Cheryl jot it down and bring it forward. Yeah, Chloe, go ahead and ask us the last All right, pressure. Um, I also just wanted to uh, mention the JRC's recent report on values and identities, a policymaker's guide, because that basically answers that exactly. I can share it with you after. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Um, <laughs> but actually, this is a broader question to finish, I guess. Um, so this particular topic on crisis and vulnerability, it seems like a very, very interdisciplinary topic that brings together natural sciences and social sciences. And that for me is really, really interesting because it seems like from what I've heard so far and some positive examples, it's been done quite successfully. And I still see a lot of other areas really struggling to bring the social sciences together with the natural sciences. So maybe if there's any lessons you've learnt on, on bridging that gap to anyone in the panel. You may. Very quickly. Um, this joins also with the use of, use, uh, if you allow me, uh, of the Horizon projects. And for me, here we are in Science for Policy. I think that uh, one thing that it's important is to build the, the requests that are in the codes of uh, Horizon uh, together with the, the end users. For me, about uh, civil protection, but all in other fields, because we, I participated in a Horizon project in which I was um, uh, in the advisory board, but we wrote the, the, the proposal together since the beginning. And uh, part of this proposal was about uh, the quality of life of people that were displaced after an emergency, living in temporary housing. So there was a, a, an earthquake, three earthquakes indeed. There was a, a part of social science because we interviewed these people that was uh, uh, living. And the, the outcome was about how as civil protection we could uh, make better in future crises, in future emergencies, to make these people have a, a, a higher quality of life during the emergency. So this is a way, one of possible infinite uh, <laughs> ways to put together in a, a constructive way our activities all together, I think. I don't know if I answered you, but this is an example. While you have the microphone, Daniela, what would be your one takeaway from this session that you think we should report back to the whole conference? For me, the most important thing is that uh, we do not have to imagine uh, a one-way uh, process from science to policymakers and to act activities or action to be taken. I think with, since the beginning, we should work together. Keeping separated responsibilities because the scientists have their own responsibilities that are not related to the decisions. This is, has to be clear, otherwise the, the mix will be of course, science will influence policies, but it's not up to the scientists to take this kind of responsibilities. Each, has, each of us has it's our responsibilities, but work together with common goals, build together activities, not in, a, in, not in one way, not in two way, but together. Thank you very much. Let's go back along the line this way then. So Maria, any final words, tips for Shira? Um, when it comes to 
science for policy, we a little bit touched uh, implicitly on a topic of trust. Um, but uh, I liked most of all from, from Tina's work and other experts that um, trust is not something that just is or is not, but just trust is something that can be worked on. So even engineered, maybe it's like a negative connotation, but you can actually work building trust. And, and actually I liked reflecting upon that, that even if you just, you know, did something that trust will erode, you can still be, build it back. Okay, if you do it like 10 times in a row, maybe then not, but you know, <laughs> uh, once you still can do it. So um, I, I'd really like to take that idea with you that um, trust just isn't, trust can be managed. Thank you. Barbara. I would then also say that that's quite, that can be quite dangerous. Huh? I'm thinking of uh, Ransomen's warning that democracies in the 21st century will die by us still trusting them when they no longer function. So trust without practice that deserves the trust can be quite dangerous. But my takeaway for Shira, I, <laughs> I thought I thought Shira's note, your note taking was enthusiastic about what we say. Yes. <laughs> but, so I think my, my, my takeaway, which really was illustrated here, is that um, questions of evidence and scientific evidence are always also relevant for thinking about values and ethics and, and questions of value and ethics are always part of um, science in the narrow sense of the word scientific um, science advice for policy making. So I think it is clear that we, it, they cannot be separated um, categorically and I think we would do, do better science advice if we accommodated those interconnections rather than pretending that they're not there. Thank you. And Tina. Thanks. So I just also wanted to, to, to reflect on that, also in the, the, the notion of trust. I think for me, also reflecting back on the, um, on the experience of chairing the working group and writing an evidence review report, what, was, what has been very important to us is the integrity of the process. So meaning that we are not just like any football trainer having opinions about crisis response or COVID response, but that we follow the scientific method and that we have a rigorous approach that, that, that can be, you know, that, 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 that other people could follow and arrive at the same result, that we have something that is, um, that, 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 is, that, that you can check and so forth, I think that is really, really important and is central also to policy advice to communicate very clearly, this is the process, this is the evidence that we arrived at, and then based on this, of course, you know, it's advice, so you have to have an interpretation of it and so forth, but make very clear, this is the evidence or this is the research, doesn't matter which field you are, but sticking to the scientific method, um, and then following it, because I think that also um, will then will then allow others to build trust and to be different from all the voices that that policymakers are confronted with, and that's especially especially important in the heat of a crisis. Also, to to transport that and convey that to a policymaker, even though this is not what they may want to hear. 
So staying true to the science and for us also keeping our independence was really essential. Wise words to finish. Thank you very much indeed. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Shushenko.